I'm Siri Lindley, two-time world champion, author, speaker, animal activist, survivor, and thriver. I have found a way to overcome every challenge and to take the impossible and make it possible. On my podcast, we're going to talk real life. We're going to get vulnerable. We're going to go first. You're not alone in your fears, your doubts, or your worries. The most successful people in the world have them. Stick with me on this journey. I will help you harness your power, claim your magic, and create the life that you dream of. Bob, we are so thrilled to have you with us. Thank you so much for making time for us today. Oh, Siri, I'm so excited. Thank you. So, Bob, I wish that your book had come out when I was just learning about triathlon and trying to become good because I truly felt like I didn't know how to swim when I started the sport. I knew that was going to be a major challenge. But the biggest thing was my mind and my biggest competitor throughout my entire eight-year career was my own mind. So as the focus coach and everyone, this man, I've met him before, um, before this podcast, and he is truly extraordinary. And your story, Bob, um, if you wouldn't mind starting with, because you're kind of a late bloomer in the sport of tennis. And I imagine that it was your story that kept you from starting to play at the level that you do now earlier. Is that correct? Well, sure. When I started to compete, I was maybe in my late 20s. I was teaching tennis and I started doing, started to compete because I couldn't understand why my students, I was teaching like seven hours a day. I had plenty of people all week long and they were telling me, well, it's not that easy to do these things in these matches. And you know, you say like when you're losing, you know, play a little more aggressively and it's that's hard to do. And I'm like, what's so hard about it? And, you know, that was when I, as a coach, I felt like if I had good information, that was what it was about. And that if I delivered it well, that was also what it was about. But it wasn't even about like whether or not people were actually able to like use the information. <laughs> and I thought it was their, you know, it was kind of their weakness or, or that they should be able to do this. So anyway, I decided to play some tournaments. I had played a few junior tournaments, but mostly my sport was basketball growing up but I was a good athlete. So now I go into these tournaments and these are age group tournaments. Up until the age of 35, it was called the open. So anybody from any age could play up to age 30, you know, just any age could play. Then at age 35, senior tournaments start, 35 and over, 40 and over and so forth. So here I was at the late end of playing, you know, with a group of people that were all mostly younger than me. And, it was just embarrassing that I just could not do the things that I was capable of doing in a pressure situation. Yeah. And one of the things that I hear all the time is like what you're describing at the beginning, you couldn't, you couldn't swim. You didn't know how to swim. So most people, they can do a certain thing, but then they can't do it when the pressure is on. Yes. But, you know, and there, there are multiple levels of that. There's, I can't swim in open water but I can swim in a pool. Okay, so you can swim, but you can't swim in a situation where it's more troublesome to you. So I immediately started to think like, what is so complicated about this? 
And I knew that at that time, this was like in the 1980s, like maybe late 1970s, I knew at that point that there was this thing that Tim Galway, who wrote The Inner Game of Tennis, talked about, which is um, there are two selves. There's, there's self one and self two. And self one is the one who plays, and self two is the one who's really running the commentary. And then I knew as people you know, started thinking about being positive and negative in their thoughts, at that time, that was like still sports psychology 101. You got to be positive. I knew that my commentary was like crushing me. So what I did was I decided I'm only going to train that for myself right now. I'm going to train how to slay my inner critic who was so powerful at just destroying me while I was trying to do something that was just playing a game. Yes. It shouldn't be that complicated, but it was. So I trained out negative thinking, and then it wasn't really that I trained it out. Instead, I learned how to more ignore it, let it go, hear it, watch it go away. It wasn't about changing negative thought to positive thought because that's like not that realistic either. So I started doing that, but I'd still lost. Once I got to the 35 and over, I could win on a local level. I was a good athlete at a good game. But as soon as I went to the national level, I, it took me four years to win a match. But and people were saying, why are you doing this? You're losing all the time. But I'm losing better. I'm getting closer. Yeah. And it was all about me breaking out of some stories I had. So really, I guess this was really the question. The story that I had originally was, how can I compete with these people who played D1 tennis or played on the tour? I never took enough tennis lessons growing up. I was busy shooting hoops. Um, I'm not that strong physically. Uh, I have a bad grip on my backhand and I can't change it. And, um, and I'm just behind. I'm just behind everybody else. And that story would surface while I was playing and maybe being effective. Maybe I'd be close with one of these former tour players. And then that story would come up. This does, doesn't make sense. You can't be beating them. They played better than you. Right. Are. So yeah. then I would find, I would support that by like rushing or double faulting or like, getting impatient about making an error, even though it's part of the game. So at a certain point, I started working on changing the way I was thinking about it. I didn't call it stories at that time, but I realized that I had an advantage. My advantage was, first of all, I had a younger tennis body than the people that had been playing tennis for all the years since they were junior players, that I was like, even though I was 35, I was really like 25. And they were really like 35, physically. Also, they were already the best that they would ever be. Some were getting better, but most of them had really already reached their apex, and they were just hanging out there, when if you're hanging out somewhere, you're going down. Me, I was getting better every time I went out and played. So I figured, I'm going to pass these people. They're standing still. I also felt, I'm not going to be strapped with the normal... Um, challenges that younger players have about managing their emotion and like being okay with difficulty. I mean, I was, I was a little bit more mature than the average person learning to compete. So I, didn't, I wasn't stuck as much with things that a lot of people have. So to me, my story started to wake me up to like, wait, you know, it's like, I'm closer and closer. I'm looking in the rear view mirror. I see people in the rear view mirror 
that I couldn't have carried their bag for them five years ago. So, wow. so that like, really enjoys me. Change the way you look at things and the things you look at change is, is what I hear here because I totally relate to this. You know, I didn't know how to swim and I want to be the best in the world. Yeah. And it's like, well, they've been swimming for 20 years and I just started swimming for six months. And so you can see how powerful this is that even when you say, you know, local levels, you know, you're winning, but then you get to the national level and that voice starts coming in. I haven't played as long as they have. They have so much more experience. It's like, okay, maybe was there even a story like, you know, playing on the local level, like, yeah, you know, I feel like that's realistic, but this, no, you know, this is huge and, and, and I don't have the experience to make this happen. But just in that shift where you're no longer looking at what's missing, what you don't have, the years of experience, the years of playing at that level, instead you're focusing on what you do have. And you're focusing on the fact that you've got this healthy, strong body that hasn't had 20 years of playing hard tennis. You've got this desire to want to make progress and become better and, and to, you know, catch up to these people and eventually surpass them. But so everybody listening, think about how different the energy, Bob, that you must have felt with that new story as opposed to the old story that just leads you to sabotaging yourself. Yes. In all fairness, though, when I come up with a new story, it's kind of BS at the beginning. Right. <laughs> it's not really who I am, but it's who I aspire to be. And that, the, unfortunately, the older stories are really who I am. And I'm trying to leave those stories. So at some point, I'm willing to say that old story is just not working for me, even though, well, that's the way I am. And I've always thought that way. And it's like, you know, change is hard. It's like, I'm stuck with that story. No, this sort of realization that this is, and I use the word story, I didn't create the word story, but like people have been telling stories for their whole lives yes, uh, as a way to get somewhere. So the willingness to look at your old story is one thing. The willingness to write your old story is another thing because you get a little bit more distance on it. You can look at it as if it's somebody else's story. We're great at fixing other people's stories. That's easy. But oh, well, why don't you think of it like that? It's like, but being willing to sort of detach from the story rather than feeling like it's just like part of who I am. Then the next thing is like, okay, I don't need this old story anymore. Let me write a new story. And let me not bring my skepticism with me about the new story just because it's not who I am. No, this is where I'm going. This is the future, Bob. This is who I'm going to be. How am I going to get there? I'm not really sure. But I'm putting a stake in the ground that I am going to be someone who, said, who really does believe I'm getting better. They're staying the same. Yes. This, is, this is who I am, not just a bunch of words that I'm saying there's work to get there. It's reminding myself on a regular basis while I'm playing and I'm losing to say, it's okay, I'm doing better, I'm getting closer, I'm catching up to them, I'm gonna pass them soon, even though the results I'm getting are not maybe what I'd like soon enough. Right, so that in that, oh, 
perfect sense, Bob. So obviously you write the old story and I love that you distance yourself from it. You can see kind of the faulty, you know, uh, ideas in it that are holding you back. You write your new story and I've heard you say, don't be conservative, like write the big story, you know, make it who you know you really need to be in order to achieve these goals. So in that, obviously, you have to do the hard work. You're not going to just write your new story and there it goes. You're saying you have to do the hard work. What are some of the habits or rituals or strategies that you put into place to ensure that eventually this new story becomes who you are? Well, first of all, I want to just say I, I like the way you said something, which is, and this is the way I think of it as well. That's why I like it, I guess. That it's who do you have to be in order to get what you really want? Yes. A lot of people put the what they really want first, but they don't change who they are. So somebody yes. who maybe is like, they're not that disciplined. Okay, it's not like toxic, terrible. But if you want to be somebody who's going to like achieve something that you currently don't have, then you need to have a certain amount of discipline that's more than you already have, or you would have already done this. So the new story doesn't have to do with winning tennis matches or learning to swim. It has to do with, um, I am a master of self-discipline. Yes. And then the brain goes, yeah, right. <laughs> Don't yeah. tell your friends that. They know you're not. But internally, that voice, the critic is saying, yeah, but you're not that disciplined. And you've You've drilled down on that story for many years in your life. Those roots might be sort of deep. You do the work on being self-disciplined. So how do you do that using that as an example? One is you write this story. I am a master of self-discipline. Don't listen to the voice that's saying, you're not. How are you going to get there? You've never been this way. No, just put it out there. Put it out there and then read it. Yes. Read it every morning. Read it every night. Read it three times during the day. As much as you can input this idea, mm-hmm. you know, some people say, well, you fake it till you make it. Okay, maybe that's kind of what it is. But to me, it's just like, don't quit on the idea or the word might be intention or the word might be goal. Again, I like to use stories because it's sort of like you can play with it a little bit. Yes. It's more malleable. So, now here you are on a regular basis, you're saying, I'm a master of self-discipline. And then don't worry about the thing you're trying to have discipline about. Look for the opportunities of the day that are already there where you either use your discipline without even thinking about it, like brushing your teeth. Yeah. Like, well, yeah, that took some discipline. Well, yeah, that's because I've been doing it a lot. Oh, okay. What about like, other things that come up that require discipline, maybe, you know, like uh, not leaving dishes in the sink that, you know, you want to put them away, but you don't have time, but you stop and you do it. Well, now you've done a repetition in discipline. So those are the lighter weights that you use to build to the bigger weight that you need in order to swim in open water. I love that. As an example. So one is to repeat it to yourself. Yeah. Read it. When you read it, don't let it just be words. As you do it a little bit more by the second, third, and fourth day, that quickly, 
see if you can get the feeling of what that is to have self-discipline using things that you have self-discipline about. Nobody's got no discipline. Somebody has some discipline. So you can reward yourself for these things that you do with discipline, walking the dog or remembering to lock the front door or to close the sunroof when there are clouds out. These are all things that require a level of self-discipline that are the light weights that build the foundation of the strong weight that's needed for the big thing. But you might be lucky and might need it right away, in which case, yeah, you're diving into the open water without even having done the discipline thing, but now you're going to call on it anyhow. So write it, read it, announce it to other people. People that are supportive of you, they're great. They're like, oh, that's, you tell them, hey, there's a new me in town. I'm a master of self-discipline. I know that I haven't demonstrated that before, but get ready. There's a new me coming to town and they'll be very supportive and helpful. And then maybe they'll also give you a little push every now and then when they notice. So that might be family, partner, um, somebody that you compete with, that you practice with, and they are there for you. And it's a certain level of accountability that you're now telling somebody. I send a journal out to like thousands of people and I announce things all the time that I'm not yet. Amazing. People like, how are you doing with that living a life of uh, equanimity? It's like, oh, well, I'm you know, on the path. I'm trying to do okay. But they know I put it out there. Yeah, accountability. And also share it with some people that might be skeptical. Mm. Often family members, siblings are often like very good at letting you know that the things you used to do is the way you are and the way you become is not the way you can really be. Those people are helpful because when you say to them, oh, well, I'll tell you why I'm going to become this. Now you're building your own conviction by convincing the doubters because don't forget internally you have that doubter, but you don't get to have the same conversation with that, per that person as you'd with, with a real person. Yes. So there's that. The main thing is use your days to train this skill of who you need to be. Use the day that's there. There are opportunities all the time. Anything that's a, that's a bad story or an old story usually pops up in every part of your life. So it's there. Yeah. Okay. So, so powerful. Couple things coming up for me. Number one, I feel this. Um, it's being intentional about now I am the master of discipline. And for me, I often, before anything, before a meeting or before an event, I think, what do I want to experience? Okay, if I want to experience great discipline today, then how do I need to show up? Am I going to show up, you know, leading with laziness or leading with, you know, uh, just, lack of interest, or if I want to be disciplined, what do I, what do I need to show up with? Like, what are the key things I need to show up with curiosity to see, you know, how disciplined can I be with this today? I need to show up with determination, commitment, presence to what I'm doing. So there's this intention. And I love how you say you're, it's like you're building the muscle of discipline. You already have it in other areas of your life. And it's a matter of acknowledging those things like even, okay, I'm brushing my teeth. Wow, this takes discipline and actually acknowledging it while you're doing it so that you're building up the truth, the proof 
that you do have discipline already within you. You just have to channel it in this direction. So all of this is so powerful. And especially, Bob, the being accountable to other people. Now that takes communicating this, that I know I haven't been disciplined in the past, but I am going to be the master of discipline. Why do we as human beings find it so hard to communicate when we want to change our identity? I feel like it's not just the doubters, and maybe that's what we fear. We fear that people are going to doubt or tell us that it's not possible. But I have so many clients that struggle with having that conversation because it's having to admit that I want to change. It's having to admit that this isn't working for me, but I believe that I can be someone different. Why is that so hard? Well, I think that, you know, what you just said, it's like that first, it's the first moment of realizing I'm not okay with this anymore. Yeah. And then just put a stake in the ground and to say, this change for me is non-negotiable. I don't care what anybody else thinks. And I don't even care what I think. Because the I that's doing most of the thinking is already coming up with all the reasons why not. Yes. There's a chapter in my book that I, that's called Ask the Question Why Yes, rather than Why No. That we don't really need much help or input on why we can't do things that we haven't done before. And a lot of people, they're trying to protect us. Oh, if you, try, you know, don't dream too big because, you know, you're going to be disappointed. Or it's like, yeah. I'm like... When I find there's something that I am not content about in who I am, in the way I operate, the way I'm interacting, the way I'm competing, in anything, when that comes up for me, to me, I instantly say, this is a bad story. Yes. And, and if I don't make a decision to change this story and to get to work on it, I'm basically saying I'm okay living with this story for the rest of my life. So for me, I've been doing this a long time. It's an instant, honestly, no exaggeration. When I like, oh my God, I'm like being so impatient. And it may not be like I'm always impatient, but I'm being so impatient right now in my life. I'm not sure what it is, but like starting right now, I have infinite patience. And that stake goes in the ground by me telling my wife, Joanne, and I just put the stake farther in the ground. I shouldn't have mentioned it to her, but I'm afraid to stay the same, Siri. Me too. I, I'm not afraid to try to change. I may not make the full blown change, but I'll be making a lot of movement in the direction of that. And that's one of the reasons I use stories rather than goals, because goals are very static. Yes. Where stories, I can say, you know, I've, I've made a lot of progress towards being this person I want to be. Yeah. That's success. That yeah. is success. That's winning. Yeah, there's more to go. Great. I'm happy I've got my life to try and continue to improve for every day that I'm on, on the earth. Yes. So, okay. so powerful. I, I think the difficulty is that there's a bad story about change. That's what I think it is for people. That people think that change is hard, it's painful. We talked about that the other day. And they might lose the people they love. If yeah. I change, maybe they won't love me anymore. Yeah, I think people who've made change are more aware of that than people that haven't. Yes. I, I think that 
at the beginning, I don't think people are worried, oh, if I change, then I'm not going to surround myself with the people I've been around with as much as I used to. But as you start transforming yourself and you see, wait a minute, it's not that they don't want to be with me anymore. It's that I want to be with more people that are like-minded yes. with me. So, okay, there is that risk. And look, plenty of people will choose to stay in bad relationships rather than get out of them. You know, I mean, people do that because they don't want to go through change. But I, I think that the story around change is not very good. It's not really supportive. It's not a universal story of like, we live to change. We live to evolve. Yes. And I think yes. that the, you know, we're all part of the universe. I don't mean, you know, want to go too much into like something much bigger, but like, that's the biggest thing. And the universe is always changing. We are just a part of the universe. So we're always changing anyhow. Yeah. All you got to do is look in the mirror every year. You see change without you doing anything. And we get wiser, most of us, as we're on the earth longer. And we get more compassionate. We, we tend to get that way just by living. But to me, let's accelerate it. I want, I want those yes. things now. I want those Absolutely. Things so powerful and definitely i feel like it's an absolute necessary step to have that outward conversation making yourself accountable like you say putting your stake into the ground um so so powerful and as far as change goes if there's one thing we can be certain about in life it's that we're going to experience change so why not yes that's it uh, you know, make sure you decide which change you're looking for and how you're going to you know, what is it? And, and, you know, when I work with people and they write their old stories with me and then we edit those and we make them sound actually worse than they are. Like people will say like, well, when I'm serving for the match, I get nervous. And then I take that line and I just make it, I get nervous. And they say, well, I didn't say I get nervous all the time. I said, that's all right. <laughs> it's like, let's not hedge here. Let's say that you want to eliminate getting nervous, period. In yeah, case there's yeah. any other place in your life you happen to get nervous. So then when people write their new story, it takes them a while to do it. I do it with them and I kind of throw in some ideas. Well, I got one last night. Somebody wrote a story and I, it was one of the best new stories. And it really was, this was a story for a lifetime because he included his investing story, his investing mindset on dealing with making mistakes and misses on fear of missing out, about the team, general mindset, on family, on dealing with setbacks. He had all these, I mean, not everybody has that many categories, but I wrote him, I said, this is like the moment when I'm working with people that is the most exciting for me that I'm, I'm here to witness somebody who has taken a chance to write the story of their future life and yes. what they are going to work on from now on. Wow, that is like- Amazing. Amazing, amazing. And you know, for all of your listeners, please don't be afraid to put it out there. And if you can even get 50% or 25% of this kind of story, think about who you'll be. It's just remarkable. And then once you've got the groove going on, like, okay, I did those. Now let me take the next 25%. You're going to be climbing to the top of your mountain over and over and over again, and it never needs to stop. Okay. Never needs to stop. So true. And Bob, I talk about this all the time because there have been certain 
moments in my life just two years ago, being given a 5% chance of survival. And that was a story I could have lived. I could have lived the story that this is the end and it's all over and how sad, but I was not willing to live that story. So I rewrote my story to this is the beginning, a new beginning of my new life because what I learned through this, who I become through this journey, no matter how hard it is, is going to set me up to live the life of mission and purpose that I dream of. And how powerful that this story writing, and especially like you're saying, when you're literally rewriting the story of your future, which is kind of what I did in that moment. But the power of that, because the story that people have that who they are now and the life that they've lived, oh, I've been an alcoholic for 30 years, so that's just who I am. No. Because anytime you say, I am this, then you're going to be that forever until you change it, right? It's just a starting point from where you want to go. Okay. Some people have a much tougher starting point. I get it. I understand that. They may have to work a little bit harder. But even with that, I mean, when you say about it's doing the hard work, frankly, I think it's about doing easy work. It's keeping your eyes open. And then when, you, when your old story pops up, you go like, no, I have this new story. That's all. You're, you're just kind of taking the power of the old story away just by saying, I have an old story, I have a new story. Okay, this is what popped up, but this is where I'm going. And that is not that hard. The commitment to it, maybe the commitment is hard, but even that, you know, I've heard it says like, change is not that difficult, but signing the change takes a long time. All right, so that's a different story, but it's a better story. Right. But it doesn't need to take a long time to decide to change either. It takes a moment. One other thing I wanted to mention, when you are working on swimming or hitting a serve or on being uh, something physical, it does take months and months and months. The mind doesn't need months. It really doesn't. It can change in an instant. It may not last for the next day. But you can change your mind in an instant. And you think about people that like, say, say a woman who gets pregnant, right? And she smokes cigarettes. And for her whole adult life, I can't quit smoking cigarettes. I've tried everything. And then they get pregnant and they stop smoking. (laughs) That's a mind shift that even is more powerful than the physical addiction. Or I've had people, Wall Street people, they're really upset a lot of the time because they if they make money, it's not enough. And if they lose money, it's terrible. And that's their whole job. So, I mean, the, it, certain type of Wall Street people. So I could be talking to them and they say, oh, I'm having a terrible day. I've lost so much money today. I'm just miserable. I'm unhappy. Then they go home and they find out using again, pregnant wife say, they go home. Wife says, I just broke my water. Let's go to the hospital. The next day they show up at work and they've got a child and they're like, enjoy from being so upset the day before that's the potential of our mind to shift in a moment just it's not as time consuming we can change quickly we really can and if it doesn't last you do what you did that worked three days before that got the change and each time you do that the change lasts longer and maybe a backslide Backsliding is okay. We do that a lot in our lives. But once you backslide, 
you say, oh, I've got this story. I backslide slide a lot. Oh, I have a new story. I, I, have, um, I have snow tires to keep myself from sliding. Yeah. Right. Whatever, you come up with something that changes the story that keeps us from moving forward. Amazing. And what is so brilliant and so powerful about this is I feel, you know, people can spend years and years and years and years in therapy to get the same result that they can get in taking an old story and rewriting it. And so I want everyone listening to know this, that if Therapy hasn't worked for something that's getting in the way of your joy, your happiness, success. Give this a try. Because I, like you, Bob, because I've been doing this my whole life, it can change in an instant. And yes, it's going to take that easy work, that constant, you know, for me, I call it changing the channel. You know, old story comes up, I change the channel to the new one. And I feel the energy that comes with that and the hope and the certainty and all of that. So with this, and, and what I hear you saying is that I'm hearing that success is just making that progress. You may take a couple steps back one day, but as long as you, you know, put yourself back on the path, being better than you were the day before, that is success, that's progress, you're moving closer to living that story. How would you define success? And this also applies to you, you know, you're going off to play the Senior Davis Cup, the World Championships soon. And what will success mean to you there? And also then we'll get to what, how do you define failure? <laughs> Let me answer that part first. People with a growth mindset, some people feel they do have it. Some people don't know what it is. But when you, when you understand what a growth mindset is, everything is about growth. Everything you do is about growth. People with a growth mindset, they don't really even use the word failure. If they miss something or if they get something wrong, they just see it as a learning experience. <laughs> That's so... You know, again, this was something that I trained in. It's not that I ever that I felt that way when I was younger. I felt like I didn't do well on a test. It's like that's terrible. I'm awful. I never understood that the test was given in a way where it was supposed to be slightly out of our reach, so that we'd find out what we needed to learn next. And I don't think that's ever been explained that well in the educational community. That it's not about getting a hundred on a test. It's about getting a ninety and figuring out what's missing that would get me to 100. And then when you start getting hundreds, you should move up to a higher level course, not look for courses that you can, don't compete against people you can beat all the time if you wanna get better. Yes, ah, boom. So as far as success, to me, <clears throat> I keep redefining what winning is. So, for me, I have a particular, a tennis mission. I, I call it my tennis mission that includes certain things. Um, there, there's the big story of my tennis mission, which is this. I, I can't say the whole thing from memory, but it's like, um, I play at the high end of my talent and skill in competition. I'm a good winner and a good loser. I accept my results with dignity and grace and class. Um, I see the self-perceived pressure moments as the sweetest moments in matches. Um, 
I play with joy. I'm non-judgmental. Um, each and every match I play is one in which I grow as a player or as a person, hopefully both. I play in a state of effortless effort. I play in a state of equanimity. So these are my stories that I go to a tournament with, not mentioning winning at all. Because if I win at 50% of those things, I walk off the court and I feel very satisfied. I prefer to win when I play, but I don't play that I have to win. Yes. By having these other things, I'm sort of guaranteeing a win unless I don't pay attention to those things. The only thing I care about is the result. So, and Bob, you win. Just everyone, Bob wins all the time. Okay, like he is a world champion, a god 25, 30 time national champion. I mean, the list goes on and on, but you can see how this outlook on winning not only leads to your great success, Bob, but to your fulfillment. You know, like at the end of any match, you feel, I imagine, fulfilled because there's so many things that you are able to say, I did These that and I'm focused. These are wins. So I've yeah. redefined win. But there are times that I win matches and I don't feel I've won. Yes. That maybe I've gotten like, bent out of shape about something or my opponent was like annoying me or like whatever doing something like that. I'm judging like I get to determine the way he should behave but um the last major tournament I played was back in I guess June and I took a break last June oh no I played since then but uh, I went to that tournament and I had been doing this work on understanding what a state of equanimity is and how, how that would be such a ple pleasant way to live my life and to play tennis matches where basically you, the reactions that you have, basically they occur and they kind of just flow through you and you don't have any response to them. You don't do anything. It's like, oh my God. It's like, no, it's like, oh, I missed that shot. Okay. It's almost being emotionless, but it's not. It's just postponing things. Yeah. I wrote while at that tournament, that the win for me in this tournament, this was a national tournament. I always prefer to win those. Uh, the win for me in this tournament would be that I succeed at having an experience of equanimity while playing that is more important to me than winning the tennis match that I'm playing. That was a big statement that I put out to like the universe, you know, and the result of me doing it was that the winning the tennis matches came very easily to me. And that was nice too. Yeah. So redefining winning is a big way to win more. There are other things besides my tennis mission. Why do I play tennis? Why do I keep doing it every year? Because um, I love the fact that um, I am in a challenging situation. That's a win for me. I love the fact that sometimes I'm too tired to go on, but it makes Tennis makes me go on. Yes. That's a win for me. I love the fact that sometimes I'm losing badly. I'm on the edge of the precipice of falling down and I continue to fight. And then sometimes I even manage to get back and win. That's a win for me. Yes. Um, the fact that I'm developing my craft and finding new parts of the court, that's a win for me. So there, I have so many wins that it's almost impossible for me to have a losing feeling 
hey, I'm disappointed when I don't win a tennis match. But my disappointment lasts for a few moments. If I stay the same, that lasts forever. Yeah. So I, I would rather just like be using tennis as a vehicle for my growth. And uh, that makes it a win. God, Bob, I love you. That's what triathlon was for me. It was a vehicle through which I was going to find myself. I mean, really, what's the purpose of these things? Putting a tennis match. What's the purpose of you putting yourself yourself through to do a triathlon? It's like, yeah. it's for what you get from it. It's yeah. not that you get a medal. Big. That's nice. That's nice. Yeah. Where are your medals? Mine are in the basement. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Really? Billie yeah. Jean King once said to me, be sure to tell your students that it's not about the, the medals and the victories, it's about the journey. And I'm like, oh, well, that's easy for you to say. You won 24 Wimbledon titles and 42 Grand Slams. Yeah. And she said, but that's why people should believe me. <laughs> it's like, that's it's right. Good. Believe me, I've been to the top of the mountain. I'm telling you, you see all these trophies that are thrown around on the mountain somewhere. Yeah, that's right. And it, it really is the case. People are so absorbed in the idea of the win yeah. and not how you win from doing the thing where you ended up winning. Yes. Wow. So, when I, when I, uh, Siri, when I got to be number one in the world, it was like a moment in time, basically. It wasn't like I was, I, I, I lived there. I didn't. Yeah. I, I had a very good year and I ended up winning in Perth the world championships which was another tournament that was called the world championships. And yeah, they might've been, they might've been deeper. There might've been more good players than in a national, which has more good players than a sectional tournament, but still, it was still a matter of me winning five or six matches. Yeah. And when the ITF people came up to me, that's the organization said, Oh, you know, in March on March 1st, you, you will have, you'll be announced as the number one player in the seniors in the 55 and over. I was like, egoed out on. I'm very excited about it. But then a few days later, I was like kind of flat when I got back to the United States and people were like carrying on as if I had like just jumped from like the bottom of the mountain to the top of the mountain. And it was like 20 years of like one foot in front of the other. Then I was number four. Then I was number two. So what I realized was, gee, I thought this is what it would really be all about, you know, but yeah. I'm not even the best player I can be. How can I be the best player in the world? Yeah. But that was the label that I was given for something that I had done. But what I found out was that the real win was that it gave me a platform that I could then use to help people, which is really what my gold medal is. What, that's the gold medal that I want. That's, yeah. that's, that's the championship that I want to win, that I'm helping people every day, all day. Amazing. And would you say, because my next question was going to be, what, what is your legacy? What do you want your legacy to be? I just know what fills my bucket is when I hear that somebody I've worked with or has read my book has gone through some sort of transformation. So I guess that's part of my legacy. I think, you know, when you ask that, I, uh, nobody's ever actually asked me that. Um, but I think that I'd like to think that I had some influence on changing the coaching profession so that, um, so that coaches truly do walk their talk. They're not just information people. 
and laying it on somebody else that they've got to like figure out how to use this information. And that um, when my book came out, and I heard, you know, I understood that Amazon was going to put it in the self-help category. I was like, it's not a self-help book. It's a book for people who buy a lot of self-help books because <laughs> people get self-help books. It's the most popular group of books. That's like, there are more self-help books sold than any other type of book, I believe. And they're on people's shelves because people read them and think if you read a self-help book, then you're going to change, but you need to do a certain amount of work. And to do that work, that's where the change of who you are comes in. Coaching is very easy for me because I just am delivering a method by which people can actually change. They have the information. They know what they're not doing. They know what they need to be doing better. They tell me that and I'm like, well, write the new story and then you can get to work on it and you're going to become it. It's not, it, so I'd like to have some influence on the coach community. I, I love that and I agree with you 100%. And I think, you know, one of the things I loved about you before we even met personally was reading how when you're tennis coaching, you're like, it's not about, you know, your grip and, you know, the follow through or this or that. It was you were realizing that it was more important, the other stuff, the internal conversations and, and all that. And my whole coaching career, I always say to my athletes, I'm not just coaching you to become a world champion. I we're doing this is mind, body, spirit. Like this is you becoming the best version of yourself. And and that drove some people away. They're like, hey, I just want to learn how to swim, bike, and run. Like I don't care about this other stuff. Right. And I knew that those I didn't want to work with those people anyway. Because I believe and and what I see, and I hope I'm I'm stating this properly, is that you are looking at whether it's an athlete or a hedge fund person or someone in business and not just giving them, you know, the tools or the strategies on how to execute, but it's more all this other stuff. And that is what is truly going to get the results. And yes, it's a, it's kind of an all in, I love how you call it the all in approach. That's how I am. If someone's not willing to go all in, they're not ready to do the, the work, whether it's easy work or hard work. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, stake in the ground. <laughs> it's like, it's, it's pretty apparent to me if people call me up and they're like hesitant and everything, I'm staying up front. Like, look, there are a lot of people that'll work with you, but you've got to be like, you, you have to really want this enough. So you're saying it's non-negotiable. Yeah. This is non-negotiable that I make these changes. I will be there with you. Don't let me outwork you. You should outwork me. There, there was two things that I wanted to make sure I got to, all right, that, that feel important to me in a podcast that I'm Thanks. doing or an interview. One is that there's, you know, there's a lot of attention on me about my tennis because that was a pretty good story that I went from losing all the, all the time, really, to winning a lot. So that was one transformation that happened. But <clears throat> while, that, while I was going through that transformation, and doing that, the work I needed to do, like being a master of managing my physical, mental, emotional, and spiritual energy, that was like 
each of those things was a certain amount of like training that I was doing, you know, training out deficit emotions and training in hope-filled emotions so that as needed, as an athlete, we need to do that. We can't, we can't have a bad attitude while competing. It just does not really work. So I was doing that training when I was 35, 40, and 45, and 50, and you know, making really good progress. And I was like, oh yeah, Bob's a master of magic, physical, mental, emotional, and spiritual energy. It's like, and that by the way is Jim Lair is one of his main Love Jim Lair, yes. From his really, you know, extraordinary book, which was called um, uh, Full Engagement. Yes. That's not the real the whole title, but like the power of full engagement. So when I was about 60, my wife, Carol, was diagnosed with breast cancer. And she was sick for three years. And she was very sick for six months at the end. And what I realized, certainly the whole experience was the most extraordinary experience of my life. I have called it the best experience of my life, not meaning best good, but best meaning the greatest uh, experience in terms of me having to be somebody that I never thought I could be and me becoming a different, a better version of myself. But I realized that the training that I had been doing for tennis was not for tennis. It was for that. And that was the toughest match of my life. So I, I don't, you know, I just want to make sure people think that, that my challenge was trying to win a tennis match. But because I had a third thing. These are the three big transformations for me in my life. One was being as extraordinary as it was possible for me to be, to be abnormal in the way in which I was dealing with her illness, to, to hold myself in a certain way for my family, for her, and for myself to get through this really awful situation as you had to do. Um, and coming out on the other side of it, and changing my life again by leaving New York, moving to Colorado. In New York, I fell in love again. I was very lucky to find another angel who I, I'm with, Joanne, we're married. So I went from a pretty dark place in my personal life to, to a, a life of lots of sunshine, even with a really bad life-lasting experience. It's not that that's ever over. The other story of mine that was a transformation was I was teaching tennis at a country club, which happened to be a golf club where they didn't even really care about tennis very much. And it was kind of a low self-esteem job because I was, I was hired help and I happened to be working at a club that my high school friends belonged to. They were members. And it wasn't I was a less than person, but I perceive myself as, oh, they're so successful and they get a new car. They go to the city and they work from nine to five and they wear a suit to go to work and I'm wearing shorts and sneakers, you know? It's like, what am I here? And I didn't like that job. I loved the job, but I didn't like that I had to work weekends, that I worked holidays, that I wasn't with my kids on the, during the summer. I was, that was a busy time for me. And I changed that story when I realized I'm teaching these people that I th think are really successful about life on a tennis court, I didn't really know. But, and then for me to go from being that person to be doing what I do now, where I sit with some people that are just like people that I would have read about and could never even like, 
sat in the same restaurant as them, to be sitting with them and shaking my head and going like, that's such a bad story you've got. It's like, it's still shocking to me the size of that change in my life. To go from being a, a club tennis pro to being a performance coach for people in multiple industries, athletes, performers. It's just like extraordinary. So extraordinary. these changes have not just been for tennis. Of They've course. been for life for me. Career, tennis, and life. Just uh, that. You're amazing, Bob. How, how can people, but truly, like, I feel such love for you and I just met you, but just um, thank you. Thank you for this gift that you bring into the world and in so many thousands of people's lives. Um, how can our listeners find you, contact you, learn more from you? Well, the probably the best way is to read my book because the book really is who I am. I mean, like the book is like the way I coach. I mean, and that's what it was written for, for the people that I couldn't really get in front of. And look, if people read my book and they want to email me, that's fine. I usually, I, I respond to emails. I, I mean, I can't believe that, uh, that authors don't if they don't. I, I wouldn't yeah. understand what. So there's that. Uh, they can go to my website. There's, there's, the material on my website that can help people really are these journals that I've been writing for the last 25 years. Uh, it's I write about every match I play, but it's not about tennis that much. It, it, the story, the narrative is a tennis story each time I write, but the lessons there are have to do with transition, change, how you deal with difficulty, loving adversity, the things that are in my book. Um, so my website is Live the Best Story of your life.com or boblitwin.com takes you to the same place. Um, Amazing. Yeah, I mean, that's how, I mean, uh, look, some people want to work with me. I, I, you know, I usually try and push people away. I mean, I love working with people, but, you know, I, I think that people can do this stuff on their own. And that's part of how I wanted to change the coaching view that people can coach themselves if they have a model. And I, I believe that the storytelling model is, is it. Again, I didn't create the storytelling model. I just got really good at using it. Yeah. And I, and I think people should feel very, very excited about the prospect that if they have anything that they want to change, anything, not their eye color, maybe not their foot size, <laughs> but like just about anything that people say, think, feel, believe, and do is software. And we yes. can rewrite it. And I think that, if people can just not be skeptical about that, they, they can start to live the best stories of their life, really. Bob, thank you so much. What a gift uh, you are to all of us. So thank you so, so much. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure. You're great. Your energy is amazing. You made me feel more energetic than oh. I even feel. I'm like pumped for the day. Oh, Bob. Well, thank you so much, everyone. Enjoy this episode and this man, you need him in your life. So buy the book. It's incredible. And go change the stories that are holding you back. Bye, everybody. Thank you for listening and sharing this precious time with me. Please remember to subscribe and to leave me a review. You can find me on Instagram at Siri Lindley, Facebook, Siri Lindley, and Twitter at Seltz. 
S-E-L-T-S. You can also reach me via email at info at Have an amazing day and shine on.